Welcome to the VU Church Podcast. Have you ever been hurt by someone close to you? Maybe it's your family, friends, or even foes. Regardless of who, there's no pain quite like people pain. In week two of our collection, Christ in Crisis, Pastor Rich Wilkerson Jr. shares on the power of forgiveness in this message, When People Let You Down. Choosing to forgive doesn't mean the hurt never happened. It simply means that the pain no longer controls you. Now let's lean into the message. We are in part two. Someone say part two. We're in part two of a collection of talks that I started last Sunday entitled Christ in Crisis. And I thought I would give us our foundational passage of scripture just because I preached from it last week doesn't mean that it's still not good this week. Somebody said amen. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. This is what the entire collection is based on. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Someone say, hold fast. You have to hold fast to what it is that you believe. You need a confession that's stronger than your circumstances. Life will punch you. Life will attack you. And it's in that moment that you need to have a bold confession about who your God is. Many of us spend our entire life telling God all about our problems. But hopefully today you get a revelation. It's time to start telling all your problems about your God. Can I get an amen out there? Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast that God knows you better than you know yourself. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet. Someone say yet. Yet without sin. This God knows you. This God understands you. This God walked in your shoes and he did so perfectly and he did so without sin. So what's our response to that? Our response is, let us then with confidence, boldness, draw near to the throne of God. Draw near to the throne of grace. Someone say, get close. Hold fast that God knows you. Get close that you might know God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, to find mercy and grace when I'm in a crisis, when I'm in a trial, when I'm in a tribulation. I don't know what you walked in here with today. I know that you can look really good on the outside, but you can be hurting deeply on the inside. And my prayer as I preach today is that you would begin to receive the mercy of God. By the way, that's what you want from God. Never, never get it twisted. I deserve more. You don't want what you deserve. Someone said, amen. <laughs> you want mercy. What I've come to testify about is that we serve a God who never runs out of mercy. His mercies are new every morning. And today as I preach, I'm believing that the mercy of God would meet you right in your chair, right there online, and that his grace would empower you to move forward. Today, I wanna talk on part two of this collection, Christ in Crisis. I wanna preach from the subject, when people let you down. When people let you down. Would you pray with me, Lord? We thank you for your word. We thank you that it changes us and transforms us. Speak to us in a crystal clear way. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said? All of God's people said? Come on, if you love Jesus, I wanna hear you all the way from the design district. Make a little bit of noise in this house. 
There's really no pain quite like people pain. What do you do when people let you down? What do you do when the heaviness and the heartache from people that you love when they hurt you? How do you respond? How do you get over that type of crisis? I've learned that the closer you get to someone, the more the potential increases for deeper disappointment. The closer I get to you, the, the, the potential increases that you could hurt me in a deeper way. I, I was thinking this week that um, distance distorts the truth. Have you ever experienced this before? That the further I am away from something, the less I understand about it, the less I can see. Um, if you were to stand and look at my um, murdered out black on black Honda Odyssey minivan, if you were to stand about 100 yards away, you could look at that. She's beautiful. You could look at her and all the way there in the distance, you could think that, man, she's dent free and she looks perfect. But how many all know, the closer you get to Mrs. Odyssey, you might begin to discover all of its blemishes the dent in the door, that it needs to be washed. Somebody keyed this car. Why? Because the closer I get, the more I begin to see the details. How many of y'all know that details matter? Details create an identity. Details tell a story. I got to pause for a moment because maybe you're new to church and maybe you're new to learning about this God that we serve but you ought to be grateful today that we serve a God who cares about the details. We serve a God who's all up in the details. The scripture says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says about each and every one of us that he knows every hair on your head, even your weave. He knows about those hairs too. There is no blade of grass that looks like the other. There is no snowflake pattern that is similar to another one. They are all unique. Each and every one of us, past, present, and future, we all have a different thumbprint because every one of us on this earth are meant to leave a different imprint. Anybody grateful for a God who's in to details? Details matter. But I never discovered details in the distance. The distance doesn't show me details. It distorts the truth. That's why you ought to quit wasting your time judging people you don't know. Some folks apparently have too much time on their hands. You got no business talking about people that you're not in proximity with. Because you don't know. You just don't know. I also think in the very same breath that you should stop being overly impressed with people in the distance. I'm not against being inspired by people from afar, but the moment that begins to cost you your very own security because you're comparing your real life to someone's fake life in the distance, it is not worth it. Distance distorts the truth. You ever hear that expression, never meet your heroes? 
It's because sometimes it's true. Because if you get close enough, you might find out they're just as broken as you are. I thought you had it all together because I, I looked at your life on Instagram. Yeah, it's called distance, dog. That's why you are wasting your time comparing yourself to some person on Instagram. Can I preach to the ladies for a moment? Stop judging your Monday to some photo you saw on Instagram. That thing has been cut, cropped, filtered, brushed, manipulated. It is a lie. Distance distorts. And if you really wanted to take a moment, maybe your heart would begin to break because some of these people that we think who have it all together, if you only knew the horror of what they have gone through to offer you up a projection of their reality, your heart would break. I say all that to say that when it comes to relationship pain, proximity plays a massive part. Proximity plays a massive part. Sin done in the distance doesn't feel the same as sin done near to me. What do you mean, Rich? Well, it's not that hard to have a grace for a man who's had an affair, but it's extremely difficult if that man happens to be your husband. It's, it's, not, it's not like the most impossible task to continue to move forward towards a daunting vision with criticism around you. But man, it gets a whole lot harder when that critic happens to be your father. Some of us, we've lived long enough to realize that people come in our life, stay in our life, hang around our life, flow out of our life. People always coming, people always staying, people always leaving. And the older you get, the more you realize, yo, if you can leave my life, let them leave. Because if they're not walking with you today, it's because they're actually not a part of the future that God has designed, planned, and promised you. Oh, you need to take about five seconds right now for every person that you hoped was going to stay but left your life. Can you take a moment right now and thank God that in his providence and in his plan, he was making a way? So some of us, we've lived long enough to go, yeah, yeah, people are always coming, people are always going. But man, it's a whole nother thing when the abandonment was your very own mother. It's close, it's close, it's close, it's close. It's not faith shattering when Christians say one thing and turn out to do another, profess faith, but actually live like the devil. That's sad, but it's not faith shattering. But man, it does kind of mess with your faith when your pastor, who you've loved, you've supported, you've sat under their teaching when they've been preaching a message to you for 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, and it turns out that all that integrity that they were preaching your way turned out to be something that they themselves couldn't live up to. That type of pain, when it's close and when it's in proximity, it causes a deeper level of heartache. Proximity matters. And the closer you are to me, the potential for deeper pain increases. That's why I've learned that so many people choose a path of isolation. 
The pain brought on by relationship was so hurtful that they refused to trust again. Have you ever heard of um, the flea experiment? It's really interesting. They take a, a can and they put fleas inside of the can and then they put a lid on top of the can. Well, the fleas, they bounce up against the lid. They bounce up against the barrier. And because there's a barrier, they believe that they cannot get free to the point that after they hit that barrier enough times, they stop believing that they could ever get out. So much so that the researchers have been able to take the lid off the can and the fleas never leave the jar. In the same way that that lid has conditioned those fleas to live in a prison, that's what our pain has done to many of us. Many of us are living with an unnecessary necessary barrier towards our future because of something that happened to us in the past because of a person. And now today, we are conditioned to stay trapped in our offense, trapped in our bitterness, trapped in our unforgiveness, never stepping into all that God has for us. This is how relationship pain works. Rich, you're up there preaching, but if you knew my dad, you would have a hard time trusting any man ever again. If you were married to my wife, I'm not sure you would ever want to get married. If you had my kids, you would reconsider being a parent. If you had my friends, you'd have a difficult time being vulnerable as well. If you grew up in my church, maybe you too would be questioning Jesus. I learned my lesson. Let me never get that close again. And so with it, my self-defense mechanism is isolation and seclusion. Let me isolate because I'm trying to protect myself from being hurt. How many of y'all know it's one thing to be introverted, it's another thing to be isolated. This is important that we kind of talk through this for a moment. Being introverted is a personality type. Let me introduce to you case study number one. Don Cherie Duran Wilkerson. Don Cherie and I have been married for 16 years. I, if you haven't learned, am an extrovert. <laughs> I am recharged and revitalized by being with people. Is it hard to tell? <laughs> My wife loves people. She's given her whole life to preaching the gospel and serving people. But my wife, when it comes to being revitalized, when it comes to being recharged, she has to retreat from people to a place of solitude, not to live in solitude, but she retreats to solitude that she might be restored and rejuvenated. It's important that you see this because being introverted is not the same as being Isolated. On the contrary, isolation is not about rejuvenation. Isolation is about preservation. You isolate because you are trying on your own to preserve. Let me isolate. Let me get away because I'm so afraid of people. I'm so hurt by people. I'm so tired of people. I don't trust people. I don't want to be around people. Get ready, here comes last week lie. It shows up every week. People just don't 
understand. People don't understand. Isolation is about suffering, not refreshing. And if I can add another word, it's suffering in silence. But I came today to preach boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ, that today you do not need to suffer. You certainly do not need to suffer in silence because there is a God in heaven who knows all about your pain. He sees you and he's with you. If you believe it, can you all of a sudden, all over this room, go ahead and lift up a big shout of praise in faith. I might not feel it, but I'm gonna faith it that he sees me and he knows about me. Jesus knows all about relationship pain. In fact, over the last couple of weeks as I've been studying, I've created three categories. I think there's a lot more, but three categories of relationship pain that Jesus faced. Now, if you're going to follow Jesus, how many of y'all know what's true for Jesus is going to be true for you? You don't have to say amen right there, but it's a truth statement. If I'm going to follow him, what's true for him will be true for me. So let me show you three categories quickly. The first category of relationship pain that Jesus faced was Pain with his family. Everyone say family. Oh yeah, Jesus knows all about family drama. You thought you were the only one on earth who had a dysfunctional family. Read the Bible. Jesus, he had family pain. I mean, to the point that his very own brothers and family members did not believe he was who he said that he was. John chapter seven, verse five, for even his own brothers, my goodness, did not believe in him. Now that's a tough place to be in. Imagine having such a mission from God, but your very own family doesn't even believe in your calling. Now it's really easy for us to sit here kind of like self-righteous and like, I can't believe his brothers did not believe that he was the son of God. But just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Can you imagine your brother Chad comes up to you and announces, I am the son of God. I can see him too. Be like, all right, slow down, Jesus. All right now. Daddy's a carpenter. All right. I think you're punching out of your weight class here. It could be difficult to believe that. It's fascinating because um, when I study and think about it, I just think, man, that must have been wild. Like, can you imagine being part of the biological family of Jesus? Like, how on earth, how on earth do you parent Jesus? Where do you, like, my, my kids are tough and, and difficult to parent, but, like, they're not, they're not divine, you know? Remember that beautiful story where Jesus is 12 years old and they, they go into the temple and they go there uh, for Passover And then mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, they leave. Uh, This should encourage any parent, by the way, because uh, it says three days into their journey back home, they realized (laughs) that Jesus wasn't with them. That's that's bad. Like, Like just, I don't know your worst parenting story, but I promise you, you might've lost your kid for 30 minutes, you might've lost them all for an hour, but most of us, we don't misplace our children for three freaking days, let alone your child being the son of God. 
They're like, oh my God, Jesus is lost. And you can see them coming back and they find Jesus. Of course, there he is in the temple teaching the priests and teaching the Pharisees. And they're like, Jesus, you're lost. And he's like, no, mom and dad, you're lost. (laughs) It'd be hard to parent Jesus. Jesus is your brother? Like, where do you go from there? You're in sports class, you're on the swim team, you think you're Michael Phelps doing the breaststroke, you look over, Jesus is walking on water. (laughs) Like, how do I even, you don't understand the pain of being his brother, you know? How, How is Jesus your cousin? Well, we know and see what Jesus's cousin does. John the Baptist. At some point over time, all the family members realized he was so much more than just a carpenter. He really was and is who he said that he is. And it leaves John in a place that it leaves all of us, that he declares out loud, he must become greater and I must become less. All of us go on that same journey that Jesus is more than a man. He is God in the flesh and he must increase and I must decrease. I say all that to say that Jesus, he knows what it feels like to be criticized, misinterpreted, at times even rejected by his very own family members. Family is an interesting thing because family is supposed to be the safest place on earth. It's supposed to be the place that protects you. It should be a safe haven where you can have real vulnerability. But for many of us in the room and watching online today, you would say family has been everything but that in your life. In fact, some of your deepest trauma and some of your worst pain has occurred within the walls of your very own family. I've talked to people in our church. Lies, manipulation, abuse, betrayal, abandonment. The list goes on and on. Some of you, you would admit out loud, yes, I have cut some family members off, but in the very same breath, you would say the reason why is because they handed me the scissors. They hurt me, Rich. Their hurt is still in my life today. And what I would say back to you is, is Jesus understands family pain. He knows, he knows, he knows. It's not just family pain that he faced. He faced the pain of friends. Everyone say friends. The second group that let Jesus down wasn't just his family, it was his friends. Not his family of origin, his family of choice. The people that he chose to spend most of his time with, his friends, his disciples, when he needed them the most, they were nowhere to be found. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm gonna preach about it next week, when Jesus is having a supernatural anxiety attack? I'm gonna talk about it next week that God understands your anxiety, he understands your mental health. It's gonna be encouraging, but Jesus is in the garden, hours away from going to the cross, and he's sweating drops of blood. Now, I have felt some pressure in my life. I have dealt with some anxiety, but I have never been rendered to a place that I'm sweating drops of blood. Jesus has one request out of his friends. Can you keep watch with me and pray with me? He starts praying. They start sleeping. He comes and finds them asleep. The scripture says that the soldiers come and right there, Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, then all, someone say all. That's all the disciples, all his friends, all his closest confidence. Every single one of them deserted him and fled. When I needed you the most, you were nowhere to be found. 
And maybe you're here in this room today and you would say, Rich, I can relate to that situation because in my deepest anguish, it felt like my friends, the ones I was leaning on, that they were asleep to my pain. If you've ever felt that way, Jesus says, I get you. I understand. I've been there before. I think what happens when it comes to friendship pain has this ever happened before where someone in your friend group maybe betrayed you, lied about you, gossiped about you, uh, walked away from you, slandered you? I don't know all the different stories and all the different themes of what, how that could look like, but whenever that's happened to me in my life, it's always this feeling of like, man, I guess I valued this friendship more than you valued it. Well, Jesus understands that because Jesus was sold out by one of his dearest friends. His name is Judas. And Judas put a price tag on their friendship. Guess how much Judas said, this friendship is worth it to me. 30 pieces of silver. What does that feel like? Jesus is going, I've given you my entire life. I'm about to lay my life down for you, but I'm only worth 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold out for opportunity and popularity. He understands friendship pain. But it wasn't just family. It wasn't just friends. It was foes, that Jesus, he had some enemies on this earth. And I do not look forward to it, but we too will have enemies, people whose aim is to hurt us, people whose aim is to oppose you, tactics to destroy you. Jesus, he had enemies from all different walks of life and from all different sides of the aisle, but some of his worst enemies actually came from the inside. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the leaders of the Jewish religion. Newsflash, if you're new once again to Christianity, Jesus was Jewish. And sometimes Pharisees kind of get this like weird caricature in evangelical Christianity. We kind of make them look like Jafar from Aladdin, like ha ha, yeah. But Years and years of history would show that Pharisees were men of God. They were living zealous lives of discipline and restriction. They knew the Torah backwards and frontwards. And they were living a life trying to walk in purity. And for a young boy like Jesus, these would have been men that he would have looked up to and admired. But these are the very men that were plotting and scheming to kill him. Man, when I got into the ministry, I'm just being a little vulnerable today. When I got into the ministry, I expected to have opposition. I expected to have enemies. If you read just a little bit of Jesus' words, he forecasts that for you in a pretty clear way. If you follow me, don't be surprised. The world will hate you. In fact, if the world loves you all the time, maybe you're not doing it right. We're clapping because we want to be hated by the world. <laughs> I expected opposition. I expected foes. I expected an enemy against my calling. I think the real shock and the real pain and the real trial was I never expected to get shot in the back. I thought I would have seen it coming. But instead, it's that friendly fire that you got to look out for. 
I didn't expect for other ministers to be against me. I didn't expect for other churches to say that my doctrine was weak. I didn't expect for other people to be the theology police. I didn't expect that when I was wounded or when I was hurt, they say Christianity is the only movement that kills its wounded. But Jesus understands that type of opposition. And what did Jesus do with his enemies? He had lots of different tactics, but more often than not, when his enemies spoke accusations in his direction, his response was to remain silent. This was his favorite tactic. I'm reminded of the words of Winston Churchill when he's dealing with Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, and they wanted him to negotiate and respond to this evil dictator. And Winston Churchill let everybody know, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And some of us, we try so hard to respond to all the accusations and respond to all the critics and try to win over the enemies and win over the opponents. But sometimes we need the wisdom of Jesus to say, this is not my battle. I'ma let the Lord fight this battle. He will defend me. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt I do not want to be perceived as being weak. And in my attempt to look strong, I speak too fast. I would venture to say that real strength is not in you always lifting your voice, but real strength is knowing how to control yourself. God, tell me when I should speak. God, tell me when I should respond. God, tell me how I should answer the accusations or the critics. God, I do not want to fight battles that are yours. I do not want to waste my time with foes that you already have a plan for. God understands what it feels like when people let you down. Knows what it feels like to have his family let him down. Knows what it feels like to have his friends let him down. Knows what it feels like to have foes and enemies try to attack and destroy him. So the question simply is, what do we do with the pain? What do we do with the hurt? What do we do with the trials brought on by family, friends, and foes? I'll tell you what you do with family, friends, and foes. You simply say, F you. I forgive you. Come on, we didn't get this far. We haven't done all these years together to think I was gonna land right there. I forgive you. What do we do when people let us down? What do we do when people disappoint us? What do we do when people hurt 
us and reject us and criticize us and slander us and betray us and abuse us, what do we do? I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Forgiveness is about setting the captive free only to discover you have been the prisoner all this time. Some of you go, but Rich, it hurts. It hurts so bad. I know it hurts. You know why it hurts? It hurts because it mattered. It mattered. That's why it hurts. I'm not up on the stage telling you that it didn't matter, that it doesn't hurt. It hurts because it mattered. It hurts because you love them. It hurts because you gave yourself to them. It hurts because you weren't supposed to be treated that way. It hurts because no daughter should talk to his daughter that way. It hurts because no mother should leave their son in that predicament. It hurts because no husband should leave a wife like that. It hurts because they were supposed to live longer, but they died. It hurts because it mattered. And if you can't feel it, then you certainly can't heal it. We're not some glossy, cliche, deal with the surface kind of church. I'm not saying I forgive you and I'm not actually acknowledging what just happened. Nowhere in the Bible does it prescribe some type of forgiveness like that. In fact, sometimes people, when they forgive real quick, I'm like, man, they are really either really close to Jesus or they're not being honest. Acknowledging what happened is vital for your recovery. I like how my friend Stephen Furtick says it. He says, offense is an event, but offended is a decision. Forgiveness is an action. I was going to try to illustrate it this week. Forgiveness is the act of releasing. It's letting go and letting God. The scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God is going to bring about justice. That's his job. My job is forgiveness. God, I'm choosing to let go. Hear me today. Forgiveness doesn't mean the hurt never happened. It simply means that the pain no longer controls me. First Peter chapter five, verse six. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Real forgiveness takes real humility. I'm going to absorb this blow. I'm going to face this pain. I'm going to deal with the emotions. I'm going to deal with the collateral. I'm acknowledging, I feel it. And if I can't feel it, then I'll never be able to heal it. So I'm gonna feel this thing and I'm gonna humble myself underneath the hand of God and in due time, not my time, not your time, in due time, in due time, casting all your cares upon him. For he cares for you. God, I'm going to cast all my care, all my resentment, all my bitterness. I'm throwing all of that upon you, Jesus, because you care for me. I'm casting my care, but clinging to Christ. 
Ooh, I feel that in my spirit. Because you got to get that picture in your brain today of what forgiveness looks like. I'm casting my care, but I'm clinging to Christ. It turns out that God gave you two hands, but sometimes he gave you those two hands to only hold one thing. And you cannot cling to your care and cling to Christ at the same time. You can't hold both. There's some things in life that these two hands, they can only hold one thing. I can't hold both mercy and vengeance. I can't hold both grace and offense. I can't hold both forgiveness and unforgiveness. I can't hold God and bitterness. Doesn't work that way. I can't cling to my bitterness and say I'm clinging to the cross. I can only hold one. And what I choose to let go of enables me for what I can pick up. I gotta let something go to pick something up. I gotta release something in order to receive something. I gotta let go of bitterness so I can pick up peace. I gotta let go of anger so I can actually pick up joy. I gotta let go of vengeance so I can actually pick up reconciliation. Unless I release it, I cannot receive what God has for me. This is a picture of salvation, by the way. I have got to let go and release my sin and my shame in order that I might receive forgiveness and salvation. I'm telling you today, you got to release in order to receive. I have to let something go that's old in order to pick up something new. I don't know who I'm preaching to today. You might be in this room, you might be watching online right now and you say, but Rich, I feel so down. You have no idea the pain. You have no idea the crisis that I am in relationally. I feel down. I hear you today. You might feel down, but you are not out. Down is the perfect place for God to reach in and lift you up in due time. Somebody say, I'm due. Somebody say, I'm due. I'm gonna let go and I'm gonna let God. I'm gonna let go and I'm gonna let God. I've learned that joy and sorrow often coexist, but joy and bitterness cannot. See, forgiveness is not about just freeing your present. It's about forging a path into the bright future. It's about removing the invisible lid of pain that's conditioned you to a prison, to a small world in the shape of a can or a jar, you were meant to live free. Maybe you're here today and you're listening to me preach and you're thinking, Rich, I, I love what you're saying. I appreciate your passion. I appreciate your words, but I am not strong enough to forgive. I wish I could forgive, but too much has happened. Too much has transpired. I've been through too much. It's impossible to forgive. I hear you. Um, I was this week watching on television. Maybe you didn't hear about it, but the Boston Marathon took place this past week. And I was watching uh, the Boston Marathon on, on television. And, and Watching a marathon on TV, is, it's, it's funny. It's kind of like watching cross, the CrossFit games. 
they, they both remind me of the same thing because unless you understand the difficulty of what they're doing, you won't appreciate their victory. So like, unless you've ever run before, you don't appreciate 26 miles. The dude who ran this year ran 26 miles. He finished in two hours and five minutes. That's like a 440 pace. And it's not amazing if you've never ran, but if you go out there, if you've never ran, go out there and run one mile. You're like, I have asthma. I don't know why I've been misdiagnosed. Oh my God. Was my dad a minor? Do I have the black lung? What's going on here? <clears throat> What's going on? Because if you don't know the difficulty, you can't appreciate the victory. That's how it is with CrossFit. It's like, if you never squat, like you don't know what these guys are doing. Like, that looks kind of okay. They're just out there running. No, no, no. Like, it's impressive what they're doing. And the guy who ran this year, two hours and five minutes. Four minutes and 40 seconds for 26. That's impossible, yo. What? Glory to God. Of course, the guy who went one is from Kenya, something in Kenya. These guys, man, they got a gift. And as I was watching this guy run, it reminded me of a name. Maybe you've heard the name, maybe you haven't heard the name. The name is Roger Bannister. Now, if you've never heard the name Roger Bannister, that's okay. But um, Roger Bannister did something in 1954 that has changed the trajectory of every runner after him. Because for years and years and years, people believed it was impossible to run one mile under four minutes. Until one fateful day, this English runner named Roger Bannister ran out in 1954 and he ran three minutes in 59 seconds. And when he did it, there was a sigh of relief even from his opponents. Somebody broke the barrier. Would you believe that some 46 days later, a guy named John Landry, he ran one mile in three minutes and 58 seconds. Within the year, five different men all broke the barrier. They're called barrier breakers. They show us that something that seems and feels impossible is actually possible. And we see it in our everyday lives, don't we? The other night I was out on the basketball court with my little son, Wyatt. He's five years of age. His cousin is in town. His cousin's name is Doc. If you're a Tombstone fan, you would know a little bit of American history. Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, two best friends, cowboys. That's how these cousins roll. And we lowered the basketball hoop down to, I don't know what it was, four feet in the air, if that. And I've done this many times with Wyatt before, but on this day, his cousin... Doc was in town and Doc was shooting and then Doc all of a sudden took it and my man looked like the white LeBron James. He went up, dunked it and hung on the rim. Wyatt's played basketball many times with me, but he saw his cousin. The ball came over to his feet. He picked it up. My man looked like Dwayne Wade in his prime. <laughs> took off and ah. I didn't know what was possible until the barrier was broken. I needed somebody to show me that the lid that's been conditioning my life turns out to be invisible, turns out to be that there is no lid, but rather my faith and my expectation and my trust in my God gives me the power to forgive. You see, God unlocks our capacity to forgive. You choose, but then God empowers you to do so. 
Forgiveness takes work. Forgiveness takes commitment. I have to choose, but as I choose, there is a God in heaven who empowers me. You see, if you told me today that forgiveness was all up to you, if you told me today that you had to forgive just with your own willpower, with your own capacity, and you started telling me your story of abuse, hurt, hangups, heartache, I would look back at you and say, bro, don't bother. It's impossible. Stay offended. Stay bitter. Get angry. Boil with anger. Why don't you? Gossip all about that person. Let everybody know you've been wronged. You're a victim. You didn't deserve that. Justice. Get justice. But the good news and why we gather week in and week out is that we don't have to forgive on our own. But rather, there was a barrier breaker and his name is Jesus Christ. And he who knew no sin, that's what Hebrews 4 said, Get that into your brain for a little bit. He never let anybody down. He never betrayed anybody, never slandered anybody, never gossiped about anybody, never abused anybody, never lied, never cheated, never lusted, didn't walk in greed, walked in generosity. He who knew no sin. If there was ever a candidate to say, yo, this is unfair, this is wrong, this isn't right. I mean, we let him down. But from the cross, the scripture says that Jesus Christ, Luke 23, verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with criminals, men who deserved that punishment, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, look at this. This isn't after the offense. This isn't after a time of healing. This is while the crime is going on. This is while the sin is taking place. You who have not received the gospel in its full weight. You who think that somehow you could ever earn your way to heaven. This is the God that while we were yet sinners, when I was putting the nails in his hands, and I make it personal because I'm the one who killed him. It was my sin that put him up on that cross. But while I was crucifying him in the midst of my sin, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I have sinned deeply against God, but he has forgiven me. And this might be heavy for some of us in the room, but this is the truth, those of us that call ourselves Christians. Unforgiveness is always an indication that we overestimate people's sin against us and totally underestimate our sin against God. Choosing to not forgive says you trust yourself more than God to protect you in the situation. Unforgiveness is not protection. 
It's pride. It's pride. And friends, like Roger Bannister broke a barrier to show all of us that it's possible to run one mile under four minutes. You might be in this room today and you say, Rich, I don't have the capacity to forgive. I can't forgive. But I would respond right back to you. Yes, you can. Because Jesus Christ already did. He 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 broke the barrier. He broke the barrier. He broke the barrier. And where I find the strength to forgive those who've let me down, family, friends, and foes, it's because Jesus already did. And when I walk in unforgiveness, I'm underestimating my sin against God and I'm overestimating your sin against me. And it's pride. It will not protect me. It will only imprison me and only leave me in a lidless jar, believing that I have been conditioned to stay like this forever. So I leave you with this. It's a simple question. Do you know what day it is? Look at your neighbor, help me out a little bit. Say, neighbor, do you know what day it is? This week, my um, brother-in-law, David D. Duran, got married to Pilar. And we had so much fun. I mean, so much family came into town. It's been crazy in the Wilkerson house. But David D. did something a little bit unconventional. He got married on a Tuesday night. And y'all, when you turn up on a Tuesday, that kind of messes your whole week up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm too old to turn up on a Tuesday night. We're all like, what day is that, you know? And uh, my brother-in-law, my other brother-in-law, Dez was in town and Dez is a singer, he's a performer. And he had a concert in West Palm Beach that he was performing at on Saturday. So Dez got up and put his suit jacket on and his suit and got in the car and started driving an hour and a half up north to West Palm Beach. And he was texting with a friend and his friend said, where are you headed to? He said, I'm headed to perform at that concert I was telling you about. And the friend said, bro, I thought that concert was on Saturday. And Des said, yeah, bro, it is Saturday. To which his friend texts back going, no, bro, it's Friday. Des looked down at his phone to be shocked. Oh my God, it's Friday. To which he turned his car around halfway to West Palm Beach and drove back to Miami to walk into the house, to be so thankful that he got to relive another Friday. (laughs) Dressed for Saturday, but it turns out it was Friday. Relationship pain has the ability to trap us in a season. Unforgiveness chains us to a moment. Bitterness puts an unnecessary boundary and barrier on our future. Some of you in this room, you are living trapped in 2015. It's 2023. Some of you men, someone hurt you when you were 14 years of age and you are now 44. Some of you, you do not realize that the season has changed. 
You're dressed in one season, not knowing that the season has changed. The pain of what someone did to you, said to you, the abandonment, the abuse, the accusation, the slander, the betrayal, the divorce, the affair. It's left you imprisoned and life keeps moving forward, but you're living trapped in the past. Do you know what day it is? Because I came to tell some people, it is not Friday. How about this? It's not even Saturday. It is Sunday. It's Sunday. And the God who makes all things new is alive and on the throne. On Friday, they killed Jesus. On Saturday, he was silent in the grave. But thank God on Sunday, he resurrected from a tomb. And the same power that conquered death, hell, and the grave, that power, that Sunday kind of power, that resurrection power, that power that says something appears to be impossible. No, 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 I got a Sunday kind of God. I know what day it is. That which is impossible has now become possible. I want you to praise God like you're living in the overflow of Sunday. I can forgive because he forgave. Come on, let forgiveness run wild. Let joy run wild. Come on. Thank you for listening to today's message. At VU, we believe we weren't meant to do life alone. We've been created with a unique purpose and designed to live in relationship with Jesus. If you've never surrendered your life to Him, we want to create an opportunity for you to do so today. If you want to say yes to Jesus, would you pray this with me? Dear Jesus, come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. I trust you with my past. I ask that you guide me in my present, and I even place my future in your hands. I'm yours, Lord, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made the decision to follow Jesus today, we wanna partner with you in the next steps of your faith journey. Go to voochurch.com online. We love you.